You remember when you got married? Remember brides and grooms? And some of y'all say, man, I had to go way back and remember that. Man, I remember it almost 29 years ago, how excited I was to see the bride come. And just like that, that excitement, that anticipation to be with the one I love, that's the way I feel this morning, church. I gotta, I just be real, be honest with you. I'm very emotional this morning. I had one of them ugly cries right there, and nothing is wrong. I am, I am thrilled. It's just everything is right. Uh, I just, I am just so excited about the Lord's return, and I just pray it's in my lifetime. If it's not, I'm going to live as if it is in my lifetime. Okay, so today's message is, it's going to be interesting. Um, let me put my notes down for just a second, because I'm going to have to read a passage of Scripture in preparation for the sermon I'm about to, to preach. And our text is Revelation chapter uh, 14, but I've got to read 2 Timothy chapter 4, because it is a great lead-in to uh, the message that God has given me out of the book of Revelation. I asked the guys to pray for me, that God would give me boldness to preach the sermon. And also, as we were praying, I prayed, God, as a pastor, as a preacher, if I can preach this text, I can preach any text. Because this is a text of when, of when Jesus comes, it is going to be a day of reckoning. It's going to be a day of justice. It's going to be a day where the mercy and the grace of God has been extended and now he comes to claim his own. So let, let me read this text. It says, I charge you therefore before God, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach. Preach the word. He's coming, Timothy. Preach the word. That was 2,000 years ago. Live as if, Timothy, he's coming any moment and preach the word of God. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all patience and teaching, for the time will come. That time has come, by the way. The time has come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And these teachers will turn their ears away from the truth, and they will be turned aside to fables. But you, Timothy, you be faithful in all things. Be watchful, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. It's interesting that Paul tells Timothy to preach the Word of God in light of the fact that Jesus is coming and in light of the fact that people do not want to hear it. Let me say that again. Be bold, pastor, and preach the Word of God in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again and people do not want to hear about it. But Revelation chapter 14, I'm, I'm trying to give you a, a preparatory word, a word of, of warning before we read this. This is a powerful passage of Scripture, and it is so revealing. It's a Jesus that we don't hardly know in the Bible. The Bible says that Jesus came full of grace and truth, and yet I find that one of two eras happened. We 
overemphasize the grace to neglect of truth, or we overemphasize truth to the neglect of grace. And yet there's this beautiful dichotomy, there's this beautiful um, synergy in the two natures of the one Jesus, that He is full of grace and mercy and kindness and compassion, and everybody He says, look at me, I die on the cross, I die for your sins, I rise from the dead, I offer you life, eternal, everlasting. But if you reject it, if you spurn my love, if you spit in my face and say, I'm just one of many ways, and you turn your back on me, then you see you get my justice and you get my wrath. And in verse chapter 14 and verse 14, you see the wrath of God. You see the wrath of God poured out on sinful man after we have repeatedly rejected His grace. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. By the way, the Son of Man, 84 times used in the New Testament, was Jesus' favorite title, okay? He refers to Himself as the Son of Man way more than the Son of God, way more than any other title. It, it shows us his, his humanity. He, he is relating to us. He is the Son of Man who came, but He's also the Son of God. And he has on his head a golden crown, a Stephanos, the victor's crown. Thank you, Corey. Thank you guys so much. And in his hand, a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the throne, and he said, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come. The title of our sermon today, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Literally in the Greek, it's overripe. The grain is, it's beyond, it's beyond good. The, the grapes are oozing, the juice is oozing out of the skins. It's, it's overdone, overripe. Oh, the grace of God. We are past needing judgment. We are way beyond the mercy and the grace of God, and yet God still extends mercy and grace and forgiveness and compassion. It's like the heavens are begging us. It's like the, the church of God should be begging us, saying, oh, would you turn to Jesus? Oh, He loves you. But when you spurn Him and reject Him, you will get what you so rightfully deserve. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also has a sharp sickle. By the way, that's not a popsicle. That is a sickle, a sharp device where you come in and you lop off the grain and you harvest it. You, you cut into the grapes and you destroy them. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry. He, crowd, he cried out to him who had the sharp sickle, and he said, thrust, pimpo is the Greek word, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And so the angel thrust a totally different Greek word. It's not pimpo, it's balo. It means to thrust down. It means to penetrate. It means to not withhold. It means to go deep within. So the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. He is trampling out the vintage where the wrath are stored. We know that, but we don't know that. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs 
1,600 stadions, 200 miles. Okay, let me, let me pray, then let me, let me preach. Father, thank you for your word. God, we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that you would lift us up. God, we believe in you. Lord, we believe your word. Lord, we believe that everything you said is true, and you are just, and you are righteous and holy altogether, and we are not. We need you, God. Our nation needs you, God. Our world needs your mercy. God, we ask that in wrath remember mercy. Lord, if it be in your sovereign will, send revival, O God. Send an awakening that turns the hearts of people back to you, God, and stay your hand. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever you come across a text like this, you've got one or two options. You can believe it or not believe it. You can judge God or allow God to judge you. Uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb wrote a biography on Charles Darwin, and in the biography she says these words, Charles Darwin absolutely despised the doctrine of hell. He called it the damnable doctrine. And because if hell is real and the Bible is true, that means my, my family are all in hell, so that cannot be, so God is lying. There is no hell. In fact, there is not even a creator. I mean, look, everything can be explained through natural selection, through mass mutation, through uh, maybe aliens did it, who knows, but surely there is no God because if there is a God, there has to be justice, there has to be accountability and responsibility, and there has to be a hell. There is no hell. God is wrong. The Bible is wrong. And you antiquated, old fogey, gross preachers you're wrong. So, you see the dichotomy. You either say, God, I believe, I'm humble, I trust in you, or I judge you. That's precisely what we're seeing in the homosexual hermeneutic of today. The Bible says it's wrong. Nature says it's wrong. It's either wrong or it's right you have an option. You can say, it's right and God is wrong. Romans is wrong. Corinthians is wrong. Leviticus is wrong. It's all wrong. And I'm right. I want to sleep with who I want to sleep with, and I don't need some preacher. I don't need some God. I don't need some Bible telling me that I'm wrong. God, you're wrong, and I'm right. Or, God, you're right, and I'm wrong. You can't have both. This homosexual hermeneutic is not going away, and it is coming with a force like you have never seen before. If the Supreme Court rules same-sex marriage, we are in great trouble, and we will see the wrath of God on this nation. If that Supreme Court does that, thus saith the Lord, I believe it with all my heart, if we don't turn back to Christ. If we don't turn back to the Word of God, if we don't turn back to the basic axiom of a homo, a homo nucleus nature of a marriage, if we don't do that, then we will experience the wrath of God, and it's probably coming in our finances. So America, repent or be ready for the judgment of God. And I better enjoy preaching like that, because there's probably coming a day I will not or I will be in jail. So I'll just be in jail. I've counted the cost. I'm ready to go. 
I'm ready to serve Jesus. I'm ready to preach his word in season and out of season. Let me tell you what that means. When Paul said, Timothy, preach the word of God, Jesus is coming. The people don't want to hear it, but you got to tell them, preach it in season. In season means when you want to preach it. Or maybe when the people want to hear it. In the 50s, America wanted to hear the Word of God. Man, they wanted the Word of God preached, and, and man, the nation was flourishing, and, 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 and oh, preachers, man, we preach, and it's exciting, and it's fun. Out of season means when you don't want to preach it, when you don't want to hear it. A lot of you today, listen, be honest, you don't want to hear this. You want the Jesus of the Gospels, not the Jesus of the Apocalypse. He's the same person. You can't have one without the other. Okay, so there's, there's two metaphors here, and I, I want you to try to understand these with me. He uses these, um, the, these horticultural metaphors to describe the impending judgment of God. He uses what I call a grain harvest and a grape harvest. A grain harvest has to do with wheat and the harvesting of the wheat. And the grape has to do with the fruit of the vine and the harvesting of the vine. Many people believe, myself included, that verses 14 through 16 deal with the seven bowl judgment that is coming in Revelation 16. And verses 17 through 20 have to do with Revelation 19, the battle of Armageddon. So it's a precursor to future judgments that are coming. First of all, in the grape, in the grape, uh, excuse me, the, the... the grain harvest. John says, I saw one like the Son of Man riding on the clouds. Now, I believe, many people don't, but most, I think, conservative evangelical scholars believe that this person is Jesus because of the Son of Man and because of the cloud terminology nomenclature. Daniel said, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. You've got the two connected, Son of Man and clouds, okay? He came to the Ancient of Days, reference to God the Father, and they brought him near before the throne. To him it was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion, now stay with me. This is still talking about the prophecy of the Messiah, of his dominion and kingdom that is yet to come. It's an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one that shall not be uh, destroyed. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 30 that He is coming on the clouds of heaven. And so I believe in Revelation chapter 14, the first person that we see is Christ, and He is preparing to thrust in the sickle of judgment and judge the nations for their overflow, superabundance of evil and wickedness. But notice in verse 14, Jesus does not wear a crown of thorns. He has a Stephanos on his head. He has the victor's crown. And he wears this crown, and this is critical to us understanding this. And as he's wearing the crown, he has a sickle in his hand. A sickle was a tool used for cutting stalks of grain so that, that they might be harvested. Joel 3:13. Listen to this text. Joel 3:13 shouts at us. It says, "Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The fats overflow for their wickedness is great. And Jesus, as the rightful owner of this place we call earth, as now he is portrayed as a judge 
it tells us, it teaches us His sovereignty. It teaches us His divine ownership. Verse 15, another angel comes from the temple. And here's the title of our sermon. He says, it's the time has come. The time has come. God's clock has wound down, and now the earth will be judged. I brought out in the public reading of the Word of God, it really is fascinating in the Greek when it says, pimpo first, and that is more of a mild virgin, version to send forth, but, but balo, 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 it means to thrust within. It's, it's just two totally different Greek words, though in English we translate them both thrust in verse 15 and 16. Now what a difference. What a difference when Jesus comes again. The first time He came, the thing He had on His head was a crown of thorns. The next time He comes, He will have a victor's crown. The first time He came, they put spikes in His hands. And the next time, just prior to His coming, there is a sickle in His hand. The first time He came, Jesus came preaching and repentance, and the Son of God has come, and He lays down His life. He rides on a donkey, for heaven's sake. The Creator, Colossians 1, says everything was created in Him, through Him, and for Him. And the great Creator now rides on a donkey. He, he shows His life, He exposes His life, and He dies on a cross, and He rises from the dead. And the next time He comes, it's not on some beast of burden, it's on a royal steed. When heaven opens, Revelation 19, and the Son of God comes. Oh, a vast, calculated difference between when He came the first time and when He comes a second time. Verse 15 says that Jesus judges the earth and the harvest is ripe. It's literally overripe. And in my notes, double-starred, underlined are these words, oh, the grace of God. You say, well, preacher, I don't know what book you're reading, but there ain't nothing about grace in Revelation 14. It's all about grace. He is shouting to us. He is, he's like God's begging humanity. Repent. Turn. Turn unto me. Live for me, your Creator, your God. And, and we don't. And we continue not, not, not. And then finally, it reaches the point of no return. And then God enacts these series of judgments. But Ezekiel 33, 11. One of the great verses in all the Word of God says that the Lord God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked man turn from his way and live. Turn, God says, turn from your evil ways and live. Does anybody doubt that we're in trouble? Does anybody not know that we're in trouble as a nation? The primary reason we're in trouble is because of, I believe, it doesn't have anything to do with Washington. I think it has everything to do with the church because we have abandoned the Bible. We have abandoned the Word of God. We, we don't have preachers standing up preaching the Word of God and the righteousness of God and the holiness of God, the sanctification. I know you don't want to hear it. I know you don't want 
to hear this, but in Jesus' name, listen to me carefully. He loves you. He has poured out his blood for you. He loves you. He does not want you to go to hell. He begs of you, repent, repent, repent. But if you don't, you go to hell and you have nobody to blame but yourself. He's crying out to you. He's crying out to you through me, a nobody, just a simple preacher. He, the voice of the Spirit of God, is begging you. Listen to Him. Please listen to Him. Listen to the songs you sang. Look at the birth pangs of heaven. The earth is crying out, repent. Our nation, I know the Pew Forum results just came out this past week, and I understand both sides. I, I understand some of my very smart, a lot smarter than I friends, evangelical scholars are saying, don't look too much at the Pew Report. It's all gloom and doom, but there's truth in it. In 1970, excuse me, in 2007, 78% of the people in America claimed Christianity, but in seven years, it's gone from 78% to 71% in seven years. The nuns, do y'all know who the nuns are? Not the N-U-N-S, the N-O-N-E-S. The nuns, or I think I'm pronouncing it right, they are the atheists, the secularists, the humanists, the agnostics. Their numbers in the same time period have gone from 16% to 23%. Many nights I cannot sleep, and I, I don't know completely why I can't sleep at times, but Benadryl and melatonin, amen. It helps for a while. But I wake up in the middle of the night a lot. This week, I woke up for an hour and a half. Now, these, are, these are like, oh, dark 32 to 4 kind of time frame. And I opened, and I didn't have to go to the bathroom. I'm not prostate-itis person yet, okay? I know, like, you're old, you got to go to the bathroom. No, I don't have to go tinkle. I, I don't. I just, I just can't sleep. And I read this, this app, uh, ABC News app, and I'm like, God, is this America? There was a, there was a woman, a 44-year-old woman, and her, I think her 12-year-old son are driving down the street, a car pulls up beside them. The guy has his feet hanging out the window, and the mom thinks that's funny, and she laughs. The, the buddy driving the car follow her. The, the mom gets nervous, calls the police officer, and says, these people, I think they're, they're kind of upset with me because I kind of laughed. It was funny. The police show up. The guy shows up. The guy gets out of the car, and he murders the mom in front of the son. He just shoots her. And he doesn't care that the police officer is there. The police officer kills the guy. But there's this 12-year-old boy, and he's, he's looking at his mom. He's been murdered. Another guy was changing the diaper of, his, of the 18-month-old son of his girlfriend. Speaking, speaking of tinkling a moment ago, that's what the little fella did, 18 months old, on the guy. And the guy beat the boy to death. He's beating to death. So God, what, what, is, what are we doing as a nation? 
And then on the Austin Talk radio, the next morning, my wife, she tells me, she knows all this talk radio stuff. She, she's a whole lot better politician than I am. She's much more knowledgeable than I am. There's a, there's a guy called the Naked Professor. In California, the last 11 years in the university, in his class, the only thing he has worn to class are his socks. Has a cup of coffee and socks. He thinks that's the coolest thing for 11 years. And at times in the class, all the students have to undress. And he thinks that's the coolest thing. He's a pervert is what he is. But he thinks that's the coolest thing. And all the young ladies have to take off their clothes. And all the guys, he turns the lights down. For 11 years he's done this. Well, finally a parent spoke up and, and he goes, what's the big deal? What's, what is the big deal? What about genocide? What about sex, slavery, and human trafficking? What about terrorists lopping off the heads of Christians? What do you think? What does God think? What does God think? What does he think? Why doesn't he just come and obliterate this place? Because he's a, he's a God of compassion. He's a God of mercy. He's so holy. He's so awesome. And yet he stays his hand. He says, one more day. One more opportunity to turn. Now let me say something that's going to make some of you really mad. You said, I'm not the naked professor. I would never beat an 18-year-old, month-old child. I would never shoot a mom in the presence of her son. But you're a sinner too. Your lust, your adultery, your pornography. Guys, please don't raise your hands. 70 to 80% of you would raise your hands. That is a sin in the eyes of holy God. So just because you had murdered somebody doesn't mean you're innocent. No, you're guilty. And I'm guilty. And our sins will be atoned. They will be paid for eternity, either through Jesus on the cross or through me in hell. And I don't know about you. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to Jesus. I want to be in His arms. I want to thank Him and love Him for His grace. Hallelujah. What a Savior. He extends grace before His time of judgment. That's just point number one. Let me go to point number two quickly. The grapes. The grapes of wrath are stored. Let's look at this just, just quickly here. Let me, let me get back to my notes here for just a second. Verse 17, John sees another angel. This angel comes from the temple, and in his hand there's a sharp sickle. Verse 18, another angel comes. He comes from the altar in heaven. And it's interesting, in heaven there depicts these altars, these temples. If you'll remember with me early on, in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, the martyred souls of the tribulation are described as being under the altar. Revelation chapter 8, the seventh sealed judgment. An angel of God takes fire from the gold and incense altar and casts it to earth. So you've got this connotation, this commingling of 
angels and altars and fire and judgment, and then it comes to earth because the grapes of wrath are fully ripe. One writer helped me understand this when he wrote these words. Dr. Robert Thomas says, the wine press in ancient times consisted of two bowls hewn out of a solid rock. One was higher than the other and contained the grapes, watch this, which someone walked on to squeeze the juice from them. The juice flowed through a duct, D-U-C-T, into the lower basin where it was collected until being removed for consumption. The redness of the juice and the staining of the feet and the garments of the treaders make an apt picture of divine judgment. And in case you missed it, Daniel, would you grab me that Kleenex, please? In case you, in case you missed, the Bible says, thank you, that the person behind all of this is God. You say, excuse me? No, it says in verse 19, it says, the wrath of God. Is poured out. It reminds me of Tom uh, of um, Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God." Not that one. The justice of God in the damnation of sinners. God is just. You can't accuse him of being unjust. When Jonathan Edwards would preach in the 1750s in America during the First Great Awakening, he would preach a sermon just like I preached, and the altar would be filled with people. In a few moments when I preach, unless God just does something supernatural, it'll be cold. It'll be quiet. The pastors will stand up here and they'll be going, I see it happen every Sunday at Great Hills. There'll be a coldness. There'll be a quiet. You know why? I don't know why. I just know we're not in revival when God comes. And when revival really comes, and when it comes to Great Hills, I'll still be preaching, and you'll be flocking to the eyes. i got a buddy in Tennessee. It's happening. The Spirit of God's all over the church. He said, I can't even finish my sermon. People are rushing forward to get saved. You say, but I bet he doesn't preach like you. No, he probably preaches a little harder than me. But that's what happens when God's in the church, when the hearts are open. When you haven't been looking at pornography and you haven't been, and you've been witnessing, you've been sharing, and you're thirsty and you're hungry and you're tired and you want to, you can't wait to get into the church of God. And when the preacher preaches the word of God, you just get excited and you go, yes, come, Lord Jesus, come. And man, you rush to the altar, you weep, you pray, and you go out there and you live differently and you share the word of God. Oh, that happens in revival. And that's what I'm praying. It happens here in my church, in my lifetime, oh, that it would happen. You say, but I do blame God. I can't imagine a God that would do a bloody sacrifice of a son, a God that would thrust a sickle into an earth. But listen, you don't know Him. If you knew Him, you would love Him because God is speaking. God has spoken. He, he speaks through nature. He speaks through conscience. He, he speaks through the created order, through general revelation. Then come over here to special revelation. He speaks through the Word of God. He, pre he speaks through Jesus, the Son of God. It's not that He's not speaking. It's, it's, we're not listening. We're not listening. God is shouting. But we as a nation and many of us here at Great Hills, we are not listening 
and we have only ourselves to blame. You can't change the world, but you can change a part of the world. You can change yourself. You can allow the Spirit of God to change you and make you ready and prepared for the coming of the King. I'm telling you, Corey, when y'all were singing that song, I'm just like, I just wept before God. The song, just come, Lord Jesus, come. And that's what I'm praying for. I'm praying that He comes in power in our, in our lifetime. I hope that you know Him. Um, I refuse to let you go to hell through great hills. You are going to hear the gospel. If you reject it, that's up to you. But I want you to know. I want you to know it. I want you to hear it. I want you to repent. I want you to believe in it. And that's Revelation 14. Thank you, Jesus. Verses 14 through 20. Private for she. Reported the duty. I'm done. It's 12 o'clock. Amazing. A miracle. Have our invitation. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the Word of God. It's very uncomfortable at times. But it's very powerful. Jesus, I thank you that you came in John 1.14. You said, the Word became flesh, and the Word dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is as of the only begotten of the Father, listen to these words, full of grace and truth. God, please forgive us. Please forgive us of not understanding your truth, of your sovereignty, of your justice. And God, please forgive some, Lord, that we overemphasize your truth and sovereignty and justice to the neglect of your love, mercy, and compassion. God, help us some way get, get our minds around both. Lord, I pray that you would move in this nation. I pray that you would stay your hand of judgment. God, I pray in wrath, remember mercy. And I pray for Washington, D.C. I pray for those Supreme Court guys. God, please, please superimpose your will upon them. God, please don't let them make that decision. For if they do, God, I believe we're in for some bad days. I believe I'm in for some bad days. But God, come what may. There are my brothers and sisters. Their heads are being decapitated even as I speak for the gospel. And Lord, the worst thing I get is written up recently in a book and called out by name for being such a harsh ogre of a preacher. So God, help us. God, help us endure afflictions. Preach the word of God. Help us to be faithful, Lord, faithful until you come. Help us, Lord, not to quit. Help us not to give up. Help us, to, help us, Lord, to get right. Some of our people today, God, need to get right with you. Lord, they are walking deep in sin. It's not, Lord, that they don't know you. They do know you. And, Lord, I'm just broken for this. Oh, God, what would happen? Would you rain down? Would your spirit fall upon us like you used to? Not since I've been here, God, but... Many years ago, I've heard where the Spirit of God fell and people's lives were changed. The Word of God was preached unashamedly, boldly. People were saved. 2,400 people packed into this place and we're good to get 800. <laughs> Two-thirds empty. God, 
Could it be? Could it be that you're waiting to give us your glory, to give us your full house, to give us an, an awakening, Lord, to give us yourself if we would repent, if we would say, God, forgive us. God, save us. Lord, help us to be the people of God you've called us to be at 10,500 Jollyville. So come, Lord Jesus. Would you come now in an invitation? In a rainy May morning. In a time when we would not expect it. Would this be the day where the Spirit of God reinvigorates Great Hills Baptist Church? Lord, do it for your name. God, do it for your fame. Do it for your glory. Help your people see, God, it is okay to be great again. Let me say that again in my prayer for Great Hills Baptist Church. It is okay to be great again. You're not going to dishonor anybody by being great again. It's our prayer. It's our pleading that this church would be a light. It would be a beacon. It would be a bastion once again. It's okay to be great. God, may we be great. May we be full. May there come a day, God, where we're not just $190,000 overspent because we don't have enough money in the first four months of a year. God, I believe, Lord, when you get a hold of us, you shake us and revival comes. Oh, God, we'll get out of debt. We'll get in the streets. We'll get off of the internet pornography. We'll get out of the bed with a, another woman. We will get in, in the love of God, in the place of God, in the Spirit of God, with the people of God. Oh, God, sin, revive. I beg of you, God, have mercy on this nation. Have mercy on this church, oh God. Forgive us of our sins. If you need to leave, friend, leave. Leave. It's okay. This may not be for you. You can leave. But God, please stay. Please move. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.